Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What kind of connection would you have with someone who never remembered your name? We respond differently to those who know our names and whose names we know. Teaching team member Bob Cargo continues the series Exodus with this sermon entitled The Name of God, which covers Exodus chapters 3 and 4. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Today, as we continue in this second week in a series in the book of Exodus, second book of the Old Testament, second book of the Bible, let me start with this question, or with this statement, rather. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Not our bank account, not how much money we're worth, not our social standing or professional success or even our family situation. It's what we think about God. That was the observation of a guy named A.W. Tozer in the book he wrote in the middle of the 20th century, 1961 is when it came out called The Knowledge of the Holy. I think it's a great observation. So let me ask you this question. When you hear the word God, what comes into your mind? That is the most important thing about you. Tozer said in his book, if I could summarize a lot of what's in the book and even what he says in the preface of the book, that the American Christian experience, quote unquote Christian, in the middle of the 20th century and through much of the 20th century was this, a low view of God, a loss of the sense of majesty, a time in which, as he said it in 1961, churches were more prosperous than they'd been in several hundred years. People attending church at all time record numbers, but very few people really understanding the gospel and really following Jesus. Most people professing to be Christians having a sub-biblical view of who God is, and there was a loss of the sense of the greatness and the majesty of God. I think that was true about the, the 20th century. Of course, things here in 2020 and the 21st century are a little more complicated, right? We now live in a very pluralistic society, not a nominally Christian society any longer, very pluralistic. There are all kinds of religions in play in our culture now and religious views of God and religious and irreligious ideas of God. Mixed in all of all these influences of religion is also this. There's good old American individualism and ingenuity whereby we tend to invent our own ideas about God. That's huge in our culture today. It's almost like if I can get something else out of the middle of the 20th century, Mr. Potato Head. Maybe if you're over 50, you remember Mr. Potato Head. Get a potato, and you had all kinds of options of eyes and ears and noses and mouths to put on this potato. You can make, make the potato, Mr. Potato Head, look like whatever you wanted him to. And that's the way a lot of people approach their view of God. I'm just going to design my own God and make him look like whatever I want him to look like, okay? I think in all of that, though, there are probably three general categories that people have now about God thoughts. The first is this, that God is distant, and the imageries I use would be these, that of a telescope. Maybe God is out there somewhere, but he is so distant from me and from us, he's irrelevant. Uh, that would be the viewpoint of atheism that says God does not exist. That's the view of agnosticism that says it's unknowable whether God exists. And by the way, an agnostic is not someone who says, I don't know whether there's a God. 
That person just maybe hadn't thought through it yet. An agnostic is someone who says it's not knowable whether there's a God. Nobody can know that. So this would be the view of the agnostic. It would be the view of the atheist. And I would say it would also be the view of good old American whateverism. So atheism, agnosticism, and good old American whateverism, just sort of a shrug of the shoulders. Maybe God is out there somewhere, but he's so distant, so far away, he is irrelevant. A second approach to who God is, that God is a tyrant. And I would illustrate that with a paddle and with a little girl in timeout with some shame maybe written all over her. Uh, God is eager to punish me. He's a mad and angry God. He's a tyrant of a God. I recently met a man who was converted out of Hinduism, and before he was converted and became a Christian, he said this was the thought that kept running through his mind, why do we have to work so hard for God to love us? That is the view of the gods of Hinduism. It's the view of the God of Islam. Some people would say it's the God of Judaism and Christianity, though it's not. And my observation is if someone has grown up with a mother or father who is always angry, always eager to punish, it's probably more than likely that that little boy or girl will grow up viewing God is like that angry, tyrannical mom or dad. Thirdly, there is the category that not only is there God who's distant and a God who's a tyrant, the third option is that God is tame. He's tame. Maybe he's sort of like a butler or a servant to take care of my needs. Maybe he's like a puppet that I can see through and control. It's a God I can totally understand. It's a God I have no need to be afraid of or terrified about at all, not, but even in, respectful, uh, in a respectful way. Uh, there, this is a God who I can totally sort of get control of. Somebody forwarded to me recently a fascinating article. The article said that secularism is an attempt to have the kingdom of God without the king. I think that's a great observation. They want a place of compassion and love and justice and truth and beauty, the kingdom, but without Jesus being king. No need for the creator, no need for the redeemer. We'll do it on our own, the kingdom without the king. But individualized American Christianity so often is a desire for the king without the kingdom. Great observation. I want it to be Jesus and me. And Jesus is helping me have the life I want to have. And that's what I'm focused on. Jesus helping me. And Jesus calling me to put forward his gospel, to, to promote compassion and love and concern and justice and truth and beauty. Well, I'm, I'm not signing up for that. I just want it to be Jesus and me. I want the king. But I'm not going to go about serving his kingdom, so to speak. The writer of this article said, ooh, and this is an ouch moment. He said, we've tried to turn Jesus into our mascot. Too often that's true. <laughs> He's my mascot. He's here to take care of me. So let me ask you, which one of these three views of God do you tend to lean toward? Do you tend to think of God as distant and irrelevant? Do you tend to God, think of God as a tyrant, angry at you and eager to punish or do you tend to think of God as very, very tame, very tame? And maybe, if anything, he's here just to do your bidding and to help you when you need help. You know, the book of Exodus introduces us to a God his, who is not like any of these things. The purpose of the book of Exodus is to tell us about the God who really exists. 
And he is a God who simultaneously is absolutely greater than we can even comprehend, but at the same time has stooped down to love us in his compassion. In Exodus, we see, my friends, the God of the gospel. If you have a Bible, look with me, please, at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3. We're looking today at chapters 3 and 4, primarily by looking at verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3 as we continue in this series on Exodus. Last week, Jeff did a great job getting us started looking at chapters 1 and 2, and he talked last week about the nearness of God. He says, God is at work in the silence, in the bitterness, in the reeds of our lives, so to speak, and even in our failures. And he hears us, he remembers us, he sees us, and he knows us. And last week we talked about the birth of Moses. And then the story sped ahead to when he was an adult. And he killed an Egyptian. He had to flee out of Egypt, and he went to Midian and married there and lived there. Today in chapter 3, we pick up on that story. And we find out more about Moses, but we especially find out who God is. Today we're going to look at these four ideas in our sermon. We're going to look first at the experience of Moses, what happens in this text. Primarily, we're going to look at the name and the nature of God. Who is he really? We're going to need, look at our need for this. Why do we need to know these things and experience these things? And then lastly, how can we know such a God? Before we go any further, let's ask God to be with us. Lord, we do ask you right now, that you would forgive the sins of the one who stands in, on this platform because those sins are many. We pray that uh, despite the person he is, that your grace would come forward right now, that your spirit would take your word and you would lead us to see who you really are, that you would lead us to see who we are. And Lord, that you might be with us in this endeavor. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. First, let's focus on the experience of Moses. What happened to him? Follow with me. Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15 from the NIV. Here it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God said to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place that you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it's I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said, Moses, said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Now, let me ask you this. Can you imagine what it was like for Moses for all this time? Here's a guy that was raised as the grandson of Pharaoh. And he lived that kind of life until he was 40 years old. And now for the next 40 years, look at what he's been doing. He has been tending sheep for his father-in-law in Midian. That's a tough change, you know. That's pretty different. This is a long way from the hallways of power in Egypt. I would say here is a humbled man, here is a broken man, and here's a bored man, okay? I've never tended sheep. But I would think day after day of doing this, after having lived the life he lived in Egypt, is like I'm humbled, I'm broken, I'm bored. Now in the midst of this, now he sees this burning bush. And after he goes over to the burning bush, I think here is his experience. First of all, he's intrigued, right? He's just intrigued. This bush doesn't seem to be consumed. It keeps burning and burning and burning all day long. It doesn't burn up. So he's intrigued, and then he walks over, and God speaks to him. And now Moses is no longer intrigued. Moses is terrified. Terrified. He's afraid to look at God. He's afraid to look at the bush. He is absolutely terrified that he's in the presence of God. And then as this experience goes on, I think he continues to be somewhat terrified. But then what happens? He becomes humbled in a good way, and Moses is transformed. He is never the same again after meeting God like this. That is the experience of Moses. Now let me ask you today, Am I speaking to anyone today here in this room or perhaps online? And you've been intrigued about the things of God. You've been intrigued about the things of Jesus, but maybe just intrigued. But now something has come into your life that has humbled you. Maybe everybody in the world knows it. Maybe just a few people know it. Maybe nobody knows it but you. And in fact, maybe it's not just been humbling. Maybe it is humiliating, or it will be if everybody knows let me just say to you right now, you have a choice to make, and that is to choose to be reverently humbled or continue to be perhaps humiliated. Moses bowed in reverence. He bowed to worship. And now perhaps if that is your situation, there's a choice to be made. Will I bow the knee or will I continue to rebel? That was the experience of Moses. That leads us then to the second consideration of our message today. That is, the name and nature of God. This passage is not primarily about Moses, right? This passage, like all the Bible, is primarily about God. And in this passage, we find out the name of God. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, at first, we got to admit, it looks like God is being a smart aleck, right? <laughs> What's your name? You don't need to know my name. I am what I am. I am who I am. It's sort of like, hey, hey, you know, you don't even know, you don't need to know my name. Well, there is a sense in which God is saying, you can't pin me down with a name. I'm bigger than that. 
I don't know that he's being a smart aleck, but he is sort of saying, let me put you and everybody sort of into their place. Let me tell you some about this name, Yahweh. Hebrew has consonants, but originally Hebrew did not have any vowels. The vowel markings of Hebrew were put in many, many centuries after the written language was invented, and it was put in by people who knew Hebrew well enough when they would read a sentence in Hebrew, they knew which vowel markings to put in to make these consonants be the word it needed to be, right? That's how it worked. And here are the consonants in English that correspond to the Hebrew letters of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. It came to be called later Yahweh. Now, the Israelites did not ever say the name of God. It was so holy to them, so special to them. For centuries and centuries and centuries, they would not say the word Yahweh. When they came to it in the Old Testament text, they would substitute the word master, Adonai, but they would not let it come out of their lips to say the word Yahweh. And finally, somebody said, okay, we need to figure out how this might have been said, and they put the vowel markings in it to be Yahweh. Now, when you're reading the Old Testament and you see Lord with all uppercase letters, that is the word Yahweh in your Old Testament Bible. If it's capital L but lowercase O-R-D, it is probably the word Adonai, which means master. Or if it's the word God, generally it could be the word Elohim. This can help you understand passages of Scripture. For example, in Psalm 8, 9, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Yahweh, our master, how majestic is your name? Or in Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God is one. Yahweh, our Elohim, is one. Yahweh, our God, is one. So it's Yahweh, Lord, and that means literally I am. Now, the word Yahweh can mean I was who I was, or I am what I am, or I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Now, why does God reveal himself this way? No doubt, one of the things he is saying is this, I'm mysterious. I am mysterious. In fact, there are two parts about the name of God that we need to see here. Track with me, please. The thing we see from the name itself is this, that God is absolutely transcendent. We see the greatness of God. We see the transcendence of God, that he transcends anything he has created. He is not like anything he has created. He is beyond and different than anything at all that he has created. He is a transcendent God. A second thing we say that, is, that comes from this name is he is a self-existent God. The theological word for that is the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, the self-existence of God. Everything else comes into being. But God is in and of himself. He is the only self-existent thing. And just like this bush here never burns up, it's sort of that picture of a, of a self-existent burning. And Jesus, or rather God, is the self-existent one. He's transcendent. He is self-existent. And also, he is incomprehensible. When I was in college and had my first real course on theology, I was rather blown away and unnerved with the fact that the very first thing we studied to understand God was to understand that he's not understandable. <laughs> the very first thing we looked at to try to comprehend God was to look at the incomprehensibility of God, that he's absolutely beyond anything we could comprehend. We can't see through him. We can't grasp him. We can't chase him down to grab onto him, so to speak. However, this story in the book of Exodus tells us the other part of who God is. And what it tells us here is just as heartwarming 
as the incomprehensibility of God is unnerving. And what it tells us is this, that though God is unknowable, he has revealed himself to us clearly. Though God is holy and separate, he has come close to us. And though God is pure and spotless and perfect and could simply be our judge and only our judge, rightly so, he has chosen to save sinners who will put their faith in him. You see, at this point in Israel's history, they've heard about Yahweh. They know he's a great God who created everything there is. And he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's all they know. But here in the book of Exodus, Yahweh shows up to say this. I'm also a God who remembers my promise to redeem. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of redemption. I'm a God of love. I'm a God who will condescend to come and show myself to you and care about you because you are my people. That's what we see about God. Now, the other thing we have to see here is the why. Why in the world is God doing this in the book of Exodus? Why is he acting like he is? Why is he going to get Moses and going to get Moses to bring Israel out of Egypt? And he's doing it for this purpose. God is out to make a name for himself. If you or I are out to make a name for ourselves, that might not be so good. But it's a good thing when God is out to make a name for himself. And the book of Exodus is about this idea. God is out to make his name famous, not just to Israel and not just to Egypt, but to people from all over the world, from every tongue and tribe and nation, from all the ethnos, so to speak. He is out to make a name for himself. The prophet Jeremiah talked about this in Jeremiah 16. Notice as I read it. Jeremiah says, O Yahweh, my fortress and my strength, my refuge in time of distress, to you the nations, the Goyim, the ethnos, all the people groups of the earth will come from the ends of the earth, and they will say, our fathers possessed nothing but false gods, worthless idols that did them no good. Do men make their own gods? Yes, but they're not really gods. Therefore, I will teach them, says the Lord. This time I will teach them my power and my might, and then they will know what? They will know that my name is Yahweh. God's out to make a name for himself, rightly so. We see a clue of this in the rest of what we see in Exodus 3 and 4. Let me tell you about the rest of what happens with Moses in chapters 3 and 4. After the burning bush, or there at the burning bush, finally Moses was willing to say, yes, sir, I'll go and I'll obey you. I'll do what I tell you to do. Or I'll tell you, I'll go, I'll do what you tell me to do. But he says in the middle of that, how are they going to believe me? Why are they going to believe me? And so God gives to Moses two miraculous signs. The first sign he gives him is that he says, okay, Moses, you see that staff in your hand that you've been using to shepherd the sheep, throw it down. And when he threw it down, it became a snake. And then God said, now I want you to pick it up. And he said, what'd you say? You want me to pick up the snake? And yeah, I want you to pick up the snake. And he reached down to pick it up and it turned back again into a staff. And that was very important because the Egyptians had a a snake that was a god. And it showed that Yahweh is bigger than their god. And secondly, God says, I'll give you another sign. Put your hand inside your clothing and draw it back out. And his hand was leprous. Put it back in again and he drew it out and it was whole and it was healthy. And so Moses goes to the Israelites and he says, I've come 
that our God, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has said he's going to take you out of Egypt. He's going to take you to a promised land. And he showed them both of these miraculous signs. You know what happened? They believed the good news. They believed the gospel that came to them. And the last verse of chapter 4 says this, that Israel knelt down and they worshiped. Why is God doing all of this? He is creating worshipers, and not just worshipers from within Israel, worshipers from throughout the world. That is the name and the nature of God. He is greater than we can even comprehend, but he has come to us graciously in his love. The third thing we have to look at today is why do we need this? Why do we need this? Now, probably at this point, I can sort of read your faces, Bob, this is interesting theology, but how does it relate? <laughs> Maybe it's not even interesting theology, but I want to tell you how it relates. You and I have a drastic, drastic deep need to bo know both of these things about God. Today you do, tomorrow you will, next week you will. And if you're to escape, what A.W. Tozier said is the loss of a high view of God, you need both of these things. So first of all, every day that you live, you need an understanding of the incomprehensible greatness of God. You will not walk with Christ as you should if you do not start with the belief that he is great beyond your comprehension. A number of years ago, I heard the story of a woman who was on a campus ministry staff she tells the story of being on an airplane on a flight, and she begins to talk with her seatmate, and her seatmate says, what do you do? And she says something along the lines of, I talk with college students about Christ and about Christianity. In a very condescending way, he said, oh, that must be so fulfilling. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. She was sort of startled, and then she said, well, sir, what do you do? And he said rather proudly, well, I'm a scientist. I teach astronomy. She said, oh, that must be so interesting. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. <laughs> and I love that story probably for selfish reasons and sinful reasons. But the reason I tell the story now is to say this. You and I have a desperate need to think of God as bigger than we understood him to be when we were children. We really do. Back in the 20th century, there was another book written by J.B. Phillips called Your God is Too Small. And the very problem a lot of us have is simply that our God is way too small. As I alluded to in the introduction of this sermon, for some of us, we have wanted a private, personal king, but we haven't wanted his kingdom. We've wanted Jesus to be our mascot, to take care of our little life and what we're trying to accomplish and for us to feel better tomorrow than we did yesterday. And that's not the Jesus who is king. Jesus is king. He has a kingdom. He is asking you to be one of his followers for the expansion of that kingdom. And he is worthy of your awe, your respect, your worship, your everything. That is the greatness of God. The second thing you need to have firmly in your heart every day, if you believe in the greatness of God, is you need to have in your heart and in your life the gracious, redemptive goodness of God. The gracious, redemptive goodness of God. You see, Israel understood that God was great, but in this experience, they find out that he is redemptively good. Finally, after 400 years, Yahweh shows up. 
And he shows up to forgive them, and he shows up to deliver them, and he shows up to take them to where he wants them to be. He becomes their Savior in every meaning of that word because he was gracious and he was good. And you and I need to focus on that every day of our lives. My wife right now, like so many people I know, is using Paul Tripp's devotional, New Morning Mercies. On and off through the years for me, I've used C.H. Spurgeon's Morning and Evening as my daily devotional. Right now, Jeff Norris has asked our staff to be reading a book entitled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Why do we keep going back to books like this? I'll tell you why. Every day, I need my heart to be rooted in the gracious, redemptive goodness and love of my Savior. I need it daily. We need both of these together, don't we? The greatness of God and the goodness and the grace of God. There's another devotional book I've used for the years, through the years, I'd highly recommend it. It's a collection of prayers by a group of pastors and theologians from several centuries ago. It's called The Valley of Vision. Let me give you a reading of a prayer called The Great God. Because in this reading, I don't even know who wrote it, but it marries the greatness of God and the grace of God in how we need to respond. It says, O fountain of all good, destroy in me every lofty thought. Break pride to pieces and scatter it to the winds. Annihilate each clinging shred of self-righteousness. Implant in me true lowliness of spirit. Abase me to true repentance. Open in me a fount of penitential tears. Break me, then bind me up. Thus will my heart be a prepared dwelling for my God. Then can the Father take up his abode in me. Then can the blessed Jesus come with healing in his touch. Then can the Holy Spirit descend in sanctifying grace. And thy fellowship is fullness of joy. Nothing exceeds thy power. Nothing is too great for thee to do. Nothing too good for thee to give. Infinite is thy might, boundless thy love, limitless thy grace, glorious thy saving name. Let angels sing for sinners repenting, prodigals restored, backsliders reclaimed, Satan's captives released, open, blind eyes opened, broken hearts bound up, the despondent cheered, the self-righteous stripped, the formless driven from a refuge of lies, the ignorant enlightened, and saints built up in their holy faith. I ask great things of a great God. I need to tell you, the first two times I read that in the last week as I prepared this message, I was in tears at the end of it because this is the God I need. This is the God I need every single day. This is Yahweh, a God of greatness and a God of grace. The last question we look at today is simply this. How can we know and experience a God like this? How? How? And the answer is, it is through the person and work of Jesus. Through the person and work of Jesus. And I want you to understand that I mean it this way. It is through the person and work of Jesus on the very first day that I'm converted. And it is through the, very, the person and work of Jesus 50 years after I have been converted. It is every day of my life only through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The great I am has come close to us in and through Jesus. You know, if you know anything about maybe the New Testament, you know this. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were not really fans of Jesus, right? 
He loved outsiders and he loved the lawless of the day in a way that they did not comprehend. They stumbled at how much he loved lawless people and outsider people, not insiders, but outsiders. They also were just bewildered. He seemed to love all the world. And they, of course, did not love all the world. And so they really had problems with Jesus. And so at one point, they are accusing Jesus of all kinds of terrible things. And Jesus basically said, why aren't you rejoicing in me? Abraham rejoiced with the thought of seeing my day. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. How, you're saying that Abraham saw you and, and you saw him? And what does that mean? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood what he was saying. They picked up rocks to stone him to death though he got away because they understood. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he is claiming to be Yahweh. The great I am has come to us through Jesus, the great I am. And that is how we come to know him. Let me ask you if you're here today or if you're listening online and you have a hunger in your heart, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Perhaps you're one and you're saying, I'm stumbling along, I'm in the dark. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Someone that might say, I need a good shepherd. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I need a way to get to that shepherd. And Jesus says, I am the door. For every one of us today who will meet death, and that is all of us, Jesus says, if you believe in me, I am the resurrection and the life. And for those who are searching their way to God and trying to find the way to God, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. For every one of us who would like to be one of the people of God, Jesus says, I am the true vine. I'm the true vineyard. I'm the true Israel. And if you believe in me, you'll be like one of the branches in that vine, which is the people of God. You see, here's the gospel of Jesus. Jesus lived a life that we should have lived, but we didn't. He's died the death that we deserve to die. He's been raised again to newness of life so that we can have newness of life. And all of that is promised to every person who will give up self-lordship and who will submit to him and trust in his death and his resurrection to forgive us and heal us, not only in the first day of following Jesus, but continue in that attitude all the days of our lives. Now, remember earlier in the sermon here, we said that God is on a mission, right? God is on a mission to make his name famous around the earth. In the New Testament, the mission continues, but get this, the name changes a little bit. The name changes. In Philippians chapter 2, it said, in order to accomplish all this, Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself to be one of us. He humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. And as a result of that, something happens. And what is it? Hear what it says in Philippians 2. Therefore, God exalted him, that is Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is God up to in this world? He's making famous the name of Jesus for the glory of Yahweh 
And if you want to follow Jesus, not only will you have forgiveness of sins, not only will your life be transformed, but you will be called to join God on the most exciting mission you could ever imagine. The mission of making his name famous by seeing his kingdom spread throughout the whole world. That's what this is all about. The last question to ask is this, how should we respond? And in many ways, we're ahead of ourselves. Jesus humbled himself to save us, and we are, hum we are to humble ourselves to get to know him. That's the bottom line. You know, Moses had this experience. Before Moses' life was over, it was said of him in the Pentateuch, and I believe that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, after Moses was dead, someone else added to the Pentateuch, but it was of the Spirit that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. But I want you to remember this. It took 40 years on the backside of the desert to get there. So let me recommend that you become like Moses became, but you take a different path. Don't take the long way and the hard way. Take the short way. Take the easy way. Bow the knee to Jesus and let him save you and change you. Maybe to prayer a prayer like this, Lord, thank you for living for me, dying for me, being raised for me. I trust in you to forgive me and to heal me. And that can be a prayer of your life every single day for the rest of your life. You know, I really can't end this sermon without bringing one more verse to your attention. It's been one of my favorite verses for many, many years since I was in college. And it talks about both of these aspects of who God is. Isaiah 57, 15 says this, for this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. Don't you see there the transcendence of God, the self-existence of God, the aseity of God, the incomprehensibility of God. I live in a high and holy place. You can't even touch me. But also, he says, I also live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We humble ourselves. I saw a quote this last week from Don Carson, who was one of my New Testament professors in seminary, and this is what he said. However uncivil and angry our society becomes, we must never be angry people, but broken people living under the cross. Let me say that again. No matter how angry and uncivil our society becomes, we, the followers of Jesus, must never be angry people, but we must be broken people. Living life is broken people, living under the cross. Why? Because God abides with the lowly, with the contrite, with those who are broken and remade by the gospel. And that's not just about Jesus and me. It's about the gospel of a worldwide we. Here's what it says in verse 19 of Isaiah 57. God says, shalom, shalom to those far away and near. And who are the ones far away? Those of us who are Gentiles. <laughs> shalom, shalom to the Gentiles far away. Shalom, shalom to the Jews who are near. And I will heal them. Don't you think we need some healing these days? We need some healing. And that healing, whether it's in my heart, in my family, in our nation or in our world. That healing is what the kingdom of Jesus is all about. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do thank you that despite our brokenness, 
despite how badly we need this healing and this forgiveness, that you, the great, incomprehensible, holy God, you have come near to us in your revelation. You have come to us in the acts of Yahweh in Israel. But most of all, you have come to us in and through Jesus. We give you praise. We thank you for the life that he lived, the death that he died, his resurrection from the dead, and our hope is in his kingdom, not only to change me, to change us, but to change this world in one day to make it what it ought to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.